Welcome to another episode of the Clip City Podcast. I'm your host, Jovan Buha, Clippers beat writer for The Athletic. Today, I'm joined by not just one, but two special guests. We have Sam Widows and Chris Gary, two of the executive producers of Blackballed, the new documentary series on Quibi regarding the Donald Serling saga, covering the five days after his tapes leaked on TMZ and what it was like for Doc Rivers, Chris Paul, DeAndre Jordan, and the rest of the Clippers over that five-day period, including that game four against the Warriors, some of the fallout from the tapes, the, the meetings they had, and on and on. Gentlemen, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, man. Thank you. Well, thanks for asking us. So I, I want to first start with the origin of this. Um, Sam, I obviously know you from going back to Clipper blog um, and, and your brother, Charlie, and um, I've known you guys for, for years, but how did this project come about? You know, what, what was the sort of, you know, origin point for it? Whose idea was it? And, and how did the ball get rolling on this? Yeah. Um, it's, it's funny, you know, obviously, yeah, being, being a Clipper fan, being a, uh, a kid that grew up in LA watching Clipper games forever. Um, you know, I, I've had this conversation both with my brother, with my friends, with, with you over the years, like, it's funny cover following a team and rooting for players, but still having this like sort of deep seated, like disgust with the person who sits courtside and, and, and runs the organization. Um, and so for years, I sort of like grew up loving basketball and really rooting for these players and, and, uh, looking at their experience um, and, and sort of separating it from what I knew was this, this sort of malignant figure. Um, and so when I, I remember after, after everything happened in 2014, um, the, the more that I would uh, heard some, you know, hear interviews here and there, and there were little whispers of what was actually going on um, during that playoff series um, in the years after, but I'd heard a reference um, from, from Doc about, uh, about that, those first s- several hours, really, after the tape came out and, and a reference to their first team meeting, um, where they were in San Francisco. They were, they were, I think, staying at the, at the Ritz Carlton or the Four Seasons in San Francisco. And they were, they had their first team meeting in the conference room. And, and Doc is faced with 15 players, most of whom were African American. And they're all looking at him saying, what are, what are we going to do now? All of, all of whom came with their own, um, their own impressions, their own reactions. And, and I started realizing, like, first of all, wouldn't, wouldn't a, a challenging position for Doc to be in himself? Um, and then sort of having followed and learned a lot about the, the, play, the specific players that were on that team and knowing how really like thoughtful, um, uh, like, proud and like historically minded. A lot of them are and sort of figuring, I guess it was two or three years ago when I started, when I started working on this, figuring that something happened in that moment that was way more powerful, complex, nuanced, um, and, and, and you know, passionate than, than anyone really ever got to understand. And, and if I could possibly earn the trust of some of the, the main figures and, and, and that started with, with Doc Rivers, um, that there was a story to be told there that 
um, goes far beyond Donald Sterling. It, it goes to the heart of who a lot of these people are as as athletes, but also as sons, as fathers, as husbands, as 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 people, as African Americans in America. Um, and so, like that was that was the challenge that I kind of set set out for myself. Um, and and luckily, the, I, I had a, a personal connection um, or, or a way to 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 reach Doc. Um, and, and it really was all about trust, um, just trying to, um, and it took several months to, to have conversation after conversation, um, with, with doc and then, and building a team that he felt comfortable, um, to, to, to present this story. And, and it was a few months later that, that I met Chris, that, that it was great because I think I, I had always kind of. And there was some part of me that worried, like, maybe I'm just so passionate about this because I've been a Clipper fan for so long. But then as Chris and I started talking about it, I, I think a lot of those, those thoughts about how, how important this story could be were sort of validated by, by the way that Chris and I were, were, were talking about it. I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, Chris, but I think, I think that was when I really realized, like, oh, yeah, this is going to – this really can be as um, – multidimensional and, and, and powerful as I hoped. Chris, how, how did this reach your radar? Um, so when Sam first kind of mentioned the, the intention of doing this story, there were a couple of like, call it elephants in the room. The elephant in the room was like, this is a uniquely complicated moment in the last, call it 10 years, specifically as it relates to like race relations. 2014, coming off the hills of like Trayvon Martin, um, which kind of awakened a new activism, specifically with act athletes, because they could see themselves inside of Jordan Martin. And I remember thinking to myself when Sam mentioned that this is a stickier this is a stickier story than you may realize. Mostly due to and when I when I think of like call it athletes and activism historically, this moment was the first was the only one I could think of where the public expectation was before the action. So, like, if you think about Muhammad Ali and, you know, what he dealt with, the world reacted to how he reacted to racism. So he made a statement about racism. He made a statement about going to war. And then the world reacted to what he said. When Tommy Smith and John Carlos made their gesture at the Olympics in 68, the world reacted to what they did. Whereas if you fast forward to this moment, the action happened. The players were, the, the world looked at it. It became a media sensation. And then the expectation was for the players to do something grand. And if, if you, for all intents and purposes, when people were critical of the moment, they felt that the players didn't do something grand. And so I was always really interested in, one, getting underneath that. Two, I had heard enough stories whispered to me through friends of mine who were athletes, professional basketball players, where they were telling me versions of a story that I thought was way more complex than what the media had ever tapped into. So when Sam first mentioned it to me, I was like, bro, I know a lot more about this than they realized. Let's get into it. Given what you guys knew about this subject beforehand, what was one of your prevailing takeaways after you finished, you know, watching the interviews and, and seeing the, the narrative begin to be pieced together and, and kind of the structure of the documentary? What, what did you guys kind of learn most from start to finish? Yeah, I mean, I, I would say what what really struck me 
um, especially six years after the fact, and knowing sort of again what what happened to the team on the court in the in the um, the subsequent couple of years, um, I was really struck by the amount of respect and and fondness that everyone sort of looked back on that moment and and could really appreciate exactly what they all went through from a from a sort of healthy distance and recognizing that oh yeah we were we were sort of put in this pressure cooker that was was you know as chris said like the spotlight was on us for something that someone else did and it was incumbent on them to to react in it in a way that that was you know other people had their own expectations put upon them um and i think the way that these players reflected on it um showed just an incredible amount of thoughtfulness and appreciation for for the pressures and 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 the complexities of, of the moment whereas i think at the time so many people were focusing on donald and and v and and the salaciousness of the tape um and thinking that it was just a simple you know get him out of there um but but it really was the, the, there was just so much more complexity and so much more um it was so much more challenging than than most people realized and, and it was just really cool to see in each individual interview all the players doc just really appreciating the the uh what it meant for each person individually and, and for each other i would say the this the, the lasting sentiment and when it was all said and done, and we, I, we'd, we'd watch every interview, we were, we were there for everything that happened. The thing that kind of stuck with me most is that from from start to finish, we were observing in like real pain. Like, and I don't mean that in the sense of like which the over reduction of like someone is someone has been racist to me or someone I've experienced racism throughout my life. What I would say as powerful as the, the concept and the action of racism was equally powerful. The realization that no one had given a voice to their pain, no one, had, no one had given them a platform to express themselves at times about their pain or their their vulnerabilities or, or the baggage that they brought with them from growing up in racist environments or and or growing up in environments that they thought were progressive and then learning otherwise. Everyone had a a unique touch point even from people you wouldn't necessarily expect. So even when J.J. Reddick, who everyone would assume, oh, he's a white guy on the team, he hasn't had the same relationship with race that the other ones may. You're right, he may not be the black, black male who's experienced being called a certain name. That doesn't mean that he hasn't had to watch it, witness it, and then be quiet while it happened. And then in this moment, he stood next to his, his teammates and his brothers in arms. There, there's, there, uh, arm in arm, excuse me. There, there is, there is a realization that every single person who sat in that seat across from Mike had something to say, and, and they had something to say because they may have, they may, they may not have always had the given, given the chance to say something. And so that was what was kind of like the lasting real uh, realization for me was that this, this, this project and this process and the trust that we built um, enabled people to speak their truth. To, to follow up on a, a couple of your guys' points. I thought you guys opened up the document uh, documentary brilliantly with that quote from Doc of people want to know the response to an evil action almost as much as they care about the evil action and the people that are persecuted 
shouldn't have to answer, but that's not the way it is. And, and I thought that really, as you guys just laid out, what was kind of one of the big themes of this entire documentary of just, you know, this was not a responsibility that these players asked to be placed on their doorstep, but it was. And all of a sudden, you know, th- this kind of dormant, you know, racist that everyone had, had kind of known was a racist, but it he had never really done anything that you could really point your finger to, uh, at least publicly on like a mass level and, and kind of call him out for. Finally, this thing kind of, it, it, you know, volcano explodes and these tapes come out and all of a sudden the responsibility is on Doc and it's on Chris Paul and it's on DeAndre and, and Matt Barnes and everybody to come out and address it and make a gesture. And um, it, it really was not a responsibility they asked for, but because they just happened to be playing for that owner, all of a sudden it was their responsibility. And, and then to Chris's kind of point about JJ and stuff, I, I thought in episode three, which is called The Tape, um, and, and that's kind of about the, the tape coming out and what was said, you know, I think you guys ended that episode really well with you know, Chris talking about being called a racial slur during a game in high school and, and Matt Barnes's situation um, with you know, defending his sister and, and what happened to him in, in high school in Sacramento and, and then JJ discussing white privilege. Like, I, I thought that added a nice layer of depth to the documentary that as Chris was saying, what kind of went beyond just who these guys were and, and sort of the context of the situation, it really took it to a different level of kind of deeper meaning and, and you know, backstory with each guy. So you kind of got to see how each guy w- was thinking about things and, and processing it and what their experiences had been prior to this situation. Yeah. And I, I think it's something that I feel so lucky that that Chris has has worked with Mike Jacobs for for years, but this is my first project with him, and it's like like that's storytelling craft, and and not only being able to get to the place in an interview setting where someone feels you know comfortable enough to to open up and and really tell that truth about about their um, their life, um, but then understanding where within a within a documentary to place those those um, bits of storytelling that that gives the audience the right amount of context in the right instance, so that when they do get to the place where you know in the in the next couple episodes that'll come out over the next few days, we sort of jump right back into you know what are they going to do for game four? What's what's going to happen? Are they going to show up? Are what how what did what was that deliberation like internally? Um, but but Mike's decisions along the way in in terms of putting this story together and knowing exactly when to provide context at the outset of like where we were uh, in that place and time in America. And then who are these people um, and, and what, what is their history? Um, what, what did they bring into that meeting room when they, when they all finally sat across from each other and decided how they were going to, how they were going to respond. Um, that's just like the, the, the brilliance of, of how Mike crafted the story, I think. Yeah. He tapped, he tapped into something kind of, off the bat, when we were discussing how to approach it, we found ourselves like often realizing that a lot of the players they had, they had compartmentalized, rightfully so. The, they were in the playoffs. That team was good. They 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 had a shot. And so, where I was critical at the top of the project, I was like, I I didn't understand how they how 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 they didn't grab the moment. Right, the 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 object the the 
point of view is like, did they grab the moment? And we kept debating like, what would you do? What would you do? But then, but then as we got to know these players and really talk to them, we realized that a lot of them openly communicated that they were compartmentalized. They were compartmentalizing the moment. And so when we then took it upon ourselves, after the first round of interviews, we went back and we would pull up like video, uh, video of them and things that they said, and we would create a uh, package for them to give it to them to almost like rejigger the, to, to like reopen up that, that space in their brains and, their, and in their minds that they may have shut down out of self-preservation or otherwise. And so when we started like really getting into it, we, we were able to achieve what we said at the top. We had a saying that's like, we didn't want to be a mile wide and three inches deep. We wanted to be three inches wide and a mile deep. And there was only one way we could do that was if we kept coming back to the conversation over and over and over until we got underneath all the things that people had covered up. That's really interesting because I, I was going to say, I, I think from watching the entire documentary, I, I was really impressed with the way you guys got these guys to open up. And it was something that I spoke with Michael about in my Q&A with him on The Athletic, which you can read on The Athletic right now, um, about you know professional athletes are very media trained and they're media trained specifically to not say things. And even when they do sit down one-on-one -on -one interviews, a lot of the time you're getting these kind of robotic sound bites that aren't, there's not a lot of depth there. There's not a lot of emotion. Um, you know, very rarely there, there is a, a guy like a, maybe a, a Draymond or a Kevin Garnett who, who's going to open up and, and just say whatever they feel. But for the most part, a lot of these guys are now, you know, professional brands and, and they're very polished and um, they're very careful of what they want to say and how it's going to make them look. But in, in this documentary, I, I thought you guys got a lot out of these guys and you got everyone kind of in their natural personality and kind of who they are. And you know, you saw Matt Barnes unfiltered and Matt is one of those guys who I think is just kind of unfiltered, you know, regardless, but you saw, you know, I think sort of the, the personality quirks of the guys throughout the documentary. Uh, so it sounds like that was one of the tricks you used, but was there anything else that you, you felt helped you get them to open up and be more comfortable on camera and, and maybe give you guys stuff that, you know, had other producers or directors been involved, maybe they wouldn't have got the same stuff. I'll jump in on that one, Sam. Um, you know, I'm, we'll be blunt. Sam's a white guy, I'm a black guy, right? And we partnered together knowing that the conversation was a bit binary. It was black and white, right? What Donald Sterling said was wrong. Um, racism is wrong. Like, there are certain truths that are, that are undeniable. But what we were curious about was the space that lives between the binaries. What, what was the gray space? What was the space that allowed them to play? Um, when someone would say, I'm not going to play, everybody had an opinion. They shouldn't play. Everybody was critical of it. And, but that's, again, that's binary. We were curious about untapping the gray space. And so in that kind of, in that intention, every conversation, every pre-interview conversation, that Sam and I, Sam and I took every call together and we, we literally tapped the elephant on the head in every single conversation. Am I right? I'm pretty sure we, every single person who did not know that Sam was white and I was black, we said it out the top. We said it at the top. And, and I would then introduce my relationship with race from where I'm, where I come from. 
and experiences I had been through. And and I I put my vulnerability front and center. And then, then, then Sam would put his vulnerability front and center. And he would say, you know, I'm a bit of a purist. I'm a Clippers fan. I love it. But I want to understand this moment in history. And I, and I recognize that I may not be the obvious choice of person to work with. He would say that outright at the top. And then Mike would come in. He would talk about his white privilege and the fact that, you know, he he's the son of educators and he was bringing the curiosity of being the son of, of, of educators. And he and he just wanted to give voice to their feelings. And so it was a collective kind of like, I wouldn't say it was like therapy almost every single time. But what what we would say is we would tell every single person, speak your truth. Get it out there. And if you feel like you said too much, let us know afterwards. Now, obviously, I never want to say that as a documentarian. I never want to say that. But you have to give someone the opportunity to go as far and further than they mean to and then decide after the fact if they felt like they spoke their truth. But if you, if you, if you, if you box them in, they may not get to where they want to get to. And they may not give you the story in its totality. Unless you give them, give them, uh, give them, give them the space, and, and, and let you express that intention. And the moment we started saying that to people, you'd be surprised. People would say, "I'm going to go there," I'm, and they they would say it. I'm I'm going to give you the truth. And there were some times where they said things that they realized it communicated the truth for someone else, and then they would say, "Hey, actually, you know what? Let that person speak on their truth." So it was it was weird how how. How, how willing people were the moment we expressed like our vulnerability first. We're aware of the optics. We're aware of what you may be feeling. We are aware that you may be guarded about these things. But we're going to be there with you every step of the way, and we're going to make it safe. Yeah, and, and I mean, Chris, you said it exactly right. It, it, clear, it was absolutely, you know, from the producing team and the director, like a, a, a really collaborative and intentional effort. Um, but just to add to that, like, I can't underscore the, the value and importance of having someone like Doc Rivers and, and Chris Paul. They were our first day of production. Our first day of shooting was, was with both of them. And I think, you know, my, my hope was always that, you know, we would, I first and foremost wanted to make sure that they felt confident and, and trust that they trusted us in, in, in the process and, and, that we were going to give them um, that confidence to to speak the truth, and I think once they felt confident in in our team, our approach, um, and the sensitivity that we were that we were uh, giving the 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 issue in the moment, um, you know, their sort of sign on uh, to some of the other players and and subjects was just immensely uh, valuable and, and helpful, and and um, it, it all just became um, you know clear that we were we were we were all focused on on a a story that is is about the people who actually uh lived lived through that that moment and and um worked together to to come out the other side and and i think that that traveled all the way through the end of our production when we when we finally spoke with with adam silver in, in uh and and help with the league office, like they, they they understood the intention behind the project as well, and I think everyone came out uh, pretty pleased with with the with, with yeah. The we've, story been we're vet, we've been vet, we've been vetted effectively. It was it was, yeah. it was a bit of a snowball effect. The moment Doc 
Actually, I think it actually been before that first day when Doc sat down with with Sam and I, and we had a long conversation with him in person. And obviously, Sam had conversations with him before, but that was that was my first time really sitting across from him and having to one explain our intention alongside Sam, two explain what we hoped would happen, but three getting getting him to trust us. And then once he it became a snowball, so each one of them became kind of advocates towards getting people who ordinarily would not talk to tell the truth or tell their truth or tell the real story. And so then it's like, that's how we got Dick Parsons. That's how we got Tane Brown. That's how we got everybody. Shell Roberts, yeah. Shell Roberts was that everybody started making phone calls on uh, for us. We'd be like, hey, we're having a tough time getting to this person. Can you help us? And he'd be like, yeah, of course. And they would just sit, literally send a text saying, hey, these guys are making a documentary. They're they're good guys and they're telling the right story. And that's all it, that's all it took. And then all of a sudden doors started opening up for us. But it was about the approach. And that, that, that has a lot to do with Mike and the way that Mike listened. Mm-hmm. If you were to guess on average, how many days people in the US have to wait to see a doctor, what would you say? A week maybe? Actually, on average, people have to wait around 29 days to see a doctor in major US cities. Basically a month. If you're dealing with a condition like erectile dysfunction, you want treatment ASAP. That's why our friends at Roman have spent years building a digital platform that can connect you with a doctor licensed in your state, all from the comfort of your home. Roman makes it convenient to get the treatment you need on your schedule. Just grab your phone or computer, complete a free online visit, and you'll hear back from a US licensed physician within 24 hours. And if the doctor decides that treatment is right for you, Roman's Pharmacy can ship your medication to you with free two-day shipping. You also get free unlimited follow-ups with your doctor anytime you have a question or want to adjust your treatment plan. With Roman, there are no commitments and you can cancel anytime. So if you're struggling with ED, go to getroman.com clippers for a free online visit and free two-day shipping. That's getroman.com slash clippers for a free online visit and free two-day shipping. One of the questions I've gotten a lot from Clipper fans that I wanted to give you guys a chance to address was one of the people you didn't get, who was Blake Griffin. For the listeners wondering why Blake was not involved with this project, um, what can you tell us about why he chose not to participate all right the first thing schedule aside let's start with schedule these guys these guys all have ridiculous schedules and i, I would say our production window was very very tight i, I want to say it was like two and a half three months we started in the end of july last year yeah yeah so we had to wrap before teams were essentially getting ready to come back uh players were getting ready to go back to their teams but also like we that's that's the heat of like these athletes ramping up getting their bodies in shape so from a scheduling standpoint, it was hard for him. But two, uh, Blake had just finished. He was, you know, featured pretty heavily. He was featured pretty, pretty well in Ramona's podcast on ESPN. And so he had spent time telling his, his, his truth. And so it wasn't, it wasn't quite clear or, you know, I don't know if we felt comfortable pressing him to do it again. Again, again, race, when you're African-American, to talk about race subjects, isn't an easy thing to do, especially race, racial things you've lived. So it was a bit like, how much can you push for someone to come come on and do yours when they had just done a version of it with someone else? Mind you, ours are very different stories and very different approaches. But from, you know, just hearing about it, they're not necessarily different. And so, um, you know, we didn't get access because we had just finished doing something and schedule. 
Yeah, no, I, I figured it, it was it was that, and and I, I spoke a little bit with Michael about that, and and he issued a you know a similar sentiment. I, I just wanted to give you guys a chance to clear the air on that because I, I know fans have been asking about it. I'm I'm curious what went into the decision to partner with Quibi. Um, you know, obviously, a new platform just came out in April, and it, it is a different version of a documentary i think the documentary overall is about an hour 40 minutes somewhere around there um Mm -hmm. from from start to finish but you guys broke it up into 12 episodes each episode is about you know somewhere between six and a half to nine minutes uh but what what did you guys like about partnering with quibi and how if at all was it a you know a different experience than other documentaries and projects you guys have worked on before so I was just going to say, you know, I remember um, when we first talked to them uh, to, about a year and a half ago, and first of all, they were, they were really excited about the, the, the concept, but then internally, I remember having the creative conversation with Chris, with, with Pete, our other producing partner, and, and with Mike, um, or maybe this was before Mike. Anyway, um, it, it, I think we all realized that this story in particular with the the sort of truncated timeline of the event and all of the kind of micro moments that took place during those five days, it almost lent itself better to, to a format where you could focus in on, on these, these little events, you know, the, the first team meeting, the moments before game four um, and the tip off to the game. Um, the the, uh, the uh, an episode about the announcement from from Adam Silver um, and what went into that and and so all of these little things were like oh actually this this really could could even elevate the project creatively um, I think that's what excited us yeah it was um we I'll go I'll go, I'll go one beat further on this and I, and, and I'm I'm like a I'm a firm believer is you you got to give love to people who who really Put, put something on their back and, and, and will something through. There have been other people that wanted to do it with us. You know, I'm sure you can imagine the obvious places that would want to do this type of documentary, and they did. But for whatever it's worth, Jahan Robinson at Quibi, at Quibi, she was she was the one person who in all the rooms, I mean, like, I'm going I'm to say it bluntly, she was the only black buyer who we, we pitched to. We had, what, 13 pitches then? Yeah. 13 pitches. She was the only black buyer, the only black executive who walked into the room who was in a position to buy, right? So Jahan comes into the room and I immediately perk up. I'm like, oh, what's up? And I was, I was kind of, I was personally geeked because you, as a former executive, I understood that, you know, it's rare. So when she's in the room, Jahan immediately gets the story. I mean, she pops in immediately and she gets it. And it was her enthusiasm her genuine enthusiasm that made us believe that she would shepherd and protect it because it's not an easy project. It was not an easy project. And it wasn't, it didn't have the obvious guardrail. Whereas like we, it was a lot of entities and a lot of individuals and a lot of schedules and a lot of uh, guardians that were going to make it difficult at every step of the way. And it was her enthusiasm that kind of communicated to us that you, you need that ride or die person on the inside. And the new platform did lend itself to a way of an episodic approach to storytelling um, 
that could allow it to be one nonlinear. Two, it will allow you to, we kept saying that this, this is like 12 angry men. Like you want to know what's inside of that deliberation room. And then you want to, you want to play with time in a way and play with point of view. So you're realizing that you realize that although what they showed the world was a singular act, their point of view were not singular. They were each varied and they were each distinct. And the best way to do that was from a, a more episodic approach. Yeah. And just, and just to go back to, you know, having, having a creative executive like Jahan, who was, who's been amazing this whole time. You know, the discussion very quickly and confidently went beyond basketball. And that was like, that was the coolest thing is that like we, in a lot of the other rooms we talked about, it was like it, the, the focus sort of always went back to basketball. It was like, this is, yes, this took place within a basketball prism. Um, and, and obviously heightens the, the intensity, the stress, the pressure of, of the moment. But, but the conversation that we're having is about, is about people, is about race, is about culture, is about America. And, and, um, she was always supportive of that, of, of that angle and that approach. And, and, um, was challenged us to find, to, to always find that too. Yeah. To go further. She, yeah. She, she pushed us to like, she was like, everyone who watches this has to be able to see themselves inside of the story. And that, that was the exact, exact correct sentiment. Everybody had to be able to see themselves. Like, how, how do they perpetuate an environment? How do they enable people who have differing points of view or differing experiences, differing experiences to, to speak openly? And then once they decided to speak openly, were you an active listener? And were you an advocate? Or were you someone who asked them to quiet themselves? So we had to be able to see ourselves inside the work and then the audience had to be able to see themselves inside of it as well. And so she was the, she was the person who was off the bat asking those, again, three inches wide, mild, deep question. And so that, that gave us a lot of confidence that she would make sure that she would be able to shepherd it through. And then obviously Jeffrey Katzenberg, his, his, his enthusiasm was equal once he heard about the project. To, to go back quickly to the interview subjects, uh, was there a person that kind of surprised you with either something particularly funny or insightful or emotional? Um, you know, did you guys have a favorite interview subject? That's a person to person. Sam, you go first. Who, who is your favorite? Uh, DeAndre Jordan is the the most engaging. Like, there's a there's an honesty and a sincerity to him that I was just thrilled by. Like, I got to say, like he is as charming and and cool and and uh, nice to be around as I I could have imagined. And like. From the moment he sat down, was was ready to share and and in share in a way that was like um, that that was pretty unguarded and 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 just had you know a lot a lot of one of the things we we uh, the sort of tricks that we that we had to come up with was was giving some of the guys um, a little cheat sheet just because the dates get a little fuzzy and they're they're sort of running was it this year was it that year was it this game was it that game. Um, and his his recall was was right on point. He he uh, and and just really gave a uh, as as you saw in the in the final documentary, there are a couple moments where he's just like his reaction to seeing Donald Sterling when he comes off the elevator. This is a in the episode that comes out tomorrow or the next day, I think. So don't want to spoil, but but it's just so great and 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 um, it provides so much character to to 
the uh, to the experience? For me, I, I mean, there are quite a few, but I, if I had to say one person that had a had a profound impact on me was Doc Rivers. Um, like Doc and I come from the same city, so we come from the same place. And although we grew up in different eras, he, um, you know, his unique relationship to, with race and the experiences he had, I felt like I was talking, every time we would talk to him, I felt like I was talking to somebody who I wanted to learn from, um, not just as a person, as a filmmaker, as, as a leader, you name it, as a, as a black male. He was he was providing a, a path or through the, his language and his ability to speak about his feelings and the vulnerability that he brought to it, and it was like it was refreshing because it's like sometimes all you need is real mentorship and all you need is someone who's willing to go there with. You. And every single time Doc would talk about what this moment was, he's such a good storyteller that he was naturally going backwards in contextualizing everything he, he said with his own life. So you understood the context. That's not easy to do. And so when he, when, when the camera was rolling, Doc, Doc, excuse me, Doc, he kept giving us exactly what we needed without realizing that that's what we were going for. And so just the self, you know, I found myself just uh, enamored uh, with the man uh, that sat in that chair. Before we wrap up here, anything else you guys wanted to discuss or uh, I, I didn't ask? Maybe we could start with Sam. No, you know, I think um, I, I'm, I'm, I would just say, like, I'm so proud of, of this series, this, this documentary. I'm so proud um, to be able to work with Chris, work with Mike, um, who, who executed and, 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 you know, exceeded any vision I, I had of what this story could have been three years ago. Um, and, and for someone who's, you know, followed this team forever and, and really was um, like impacted, I think like my, my, I feel like a lot of my uh, understanding of, of the world was like shaped by my, my love of basketball and, and my love of basketball was tied to, to this team and, and to, to, be able to um, be a part of the 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 storytelling of, of Doc Rivers, Chris Paul, and, and and all those guys to to tell their story of of this like just monumental moment um, is is makes me really happy and, and proud. So so I'm just I'm I'm thrilled that that uh, it's out there and and you guys get to enjoy it and hopefully for Clipper fans, it's, uh, it's cathartic and, and also a sort of a tribute to what the organization is, is now and, and has, has become. For me, um, I would say the, the only thing I would want to say is that like what you, the, the end pro- product was the, or the, the project that you viewed was the product of an extraordinary team crew producing team, crew, camera department, you name it, that all kind of came to work with the intention of telling the truth and enabling every single person that sat in that chair, the, the space, the empathy, and you know, the love to tell the truth. And it was really kind of like infectious. There are people who were on the crew that were location specific 
who left a, such an undeniable impression on me that I don't know if we could have done and gotten everything we got if they weren't making sure that people felt comfortable and safe when they sat down. And so it, it really was a, an extraordinarily collaborative experience to, to get to the heart of a complicated subject that, you know, day in, day out in this country, we struggle with and we fail with. 90% of the time, it seems like we're getting race relations wrong. We're getting conversations about race wrong. And it felt good for one to be in an environment where we were all always on. And that was cool. That's well said. If, if you guys have not checked it out yet, you should subscribe to Quibi and watch Blackballed. Uh, the series will be ending next week, end of next week, correct? A uh, week from Friday, yeah. Week from Friday, okay. So check it out if you have not already. You should also check out my Q&A with director Michael Jacobs. That's on The Athletic right now. Uh, Chris and Sam, where can people find you on social media? Chris, we'll start with you. Oh, I'm, I'm so private. I'm just playing. Uh, <laughs> uh, but I'm just Chris and Gary, man. Okay. Incognito. I'm a pretty private Instagram too. So assume Sam Sumner, but you, <laughs> there's nothing on there. So Yeah, man. All right. I, I, I'm used to having people on to plug stuff, but th- this is kind of nice. <laughs> That's, that's, that's our ethos, man. We live by it. Yeah. <laughs> well, as always, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Jovan Buha, J-O-V-A-N-B-U-H-A. If you have not subscribed to this podcast or The Athletic, I recommend doing so. Uh, but most importantly, for this podcast's sake, you should subscribe to Quibi. Give Blackball the shot. I guarantee if you are a Clippers fan, if you are an NBA fan, if you are just a documentary fan, um, a fan of, of sports, race, culture. It's all intertwined in this documentary. I really recommend it. Um, and I thank you too for joining me today. Thanks so much, Jovan. It's awesome to catch up, man. Thank you for having us, man. Appreciate it.